Welcome to The Dreaming. I'm Joe Fulgham. I'm Sasha Smolders. This is The Sandman, issue 31, three Septembers and a January. Hi, everyone. Before we get started, if you are looking for the episode for Fear of Falling, which appears before Three Septembers in a January in the Fables and Reflections collection, go check out patreon.com slash the dreaming for it as a bonus episode there for everybody. You don't have to be a patron, but it's over there on Patreon. So go give it a look, give it a listen. Now here's Three Septembers in a January. Oh, I know I say this a lot. I love this issue. <laughs> yeah, I like it too. Yeah, this is the one that uh, when we talk about love in the hits my heart bits the most. This is the one. I, I have so many positive feelings for Norton in this. Mm-hmm. I just love it. This was my first introduction to uh, Joshua Norton, Emperor Norton. Yeah. And as people will find out as we go through this, he was a real person. And most of the characters in here were uh, real people as well. My first introduction to Emperor Norton wasn't, was through fiction. An author by the name of Christopher Moore mm-hmm. writes uh, sort of fantasy comedy novels. And uh, a bunch of them take place in San Francisco in the modern day. And he has a modern day emperor norton who dresses as the emperor and everyone refers to him as that and he (laughs) he continuously sort of shows up in these storylines um yeah as this extra character that the the other characters talk to that's cool this issue is the second story in the fables and reflections collection the order of issues and issues that are contained within it are actually weirdly out of order and chosen, but it still totally works and makes sense. You're not going to get any spoilers by getting it. So here's okay. here's the order of what's contained in Fables and Reflections. Fear of Falling, which we have recorded an episode for, and if you want to listen to it, you'll, you're going to have to go to patreon.com slash thedreaming and listen to it there. It's free. You don't have to become a patron, but That is the location of the mini episode for Fear of Falling. Mm -hmm. And this one, issue 31 of The Sandman. The next one after this is Thermidor, which is issue 29 of The Sandman. After that will be The Hunt, which is issue 38. Then August, which is issue 30. Then Soft Places, which is issue 39. Then Orpheus which is the full contents of the Sandman special number one, which was just a special on its own released comic, followed by the Sandman number 40, The Parliament of Rooks, followed by the Sandman number 50, Ramadan. So Fables and Reflection is a choice of these individual stories that were actually scattered throughout a bunch of the other arcs. Okay. Why? Well, because each of those other storylines got their own collections. Oh. Right? So we just did a game of you, which is this story that goes right start to finish. And mm-hmm. it's got six chapters and it goes through. And then there were these individual stories that Neil wanted to write. Several of them are linked together in an arc called Distant Mirrors. Mm-hmm. This is actually the third of Distant Mirrors because of the order that these went. Thermidor was the first, August was the second, and Three Septembers and January was the third. And they all are stories that deal with leaders. Okay. So this one's about Emperor Norton. 
And we'll get to the others when we get to them uh, in the order that they're in the collections. Mm. So if you have, for some reason, somebody is for the first time reading through the Sandman by numerical order, it's going to jump around a bit. But you can just look at the title and grab the appropriate one. And again, it doesn't matter at all to read these out of order. They don't mention anything from a previous arc or nothing there is all that important. You'll get it all. But to clarify for the listener, the order we're choosing is going to be the the order fables that, and reflections. Yeah, that you get them in the books because that's the collected books. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. the trade paperback collections. Them. Yeah, yeah. The storyline "Distant Mirrors" that title, a note in Sandman number thirty-one, which would be this one, indicates that the title of that anthology came from Barbara Tuchman's text "A Distant Mirror: The Calamitous Fourteenth Century." Uh, Wikipedia has a note on that saying that the that title conveys Tuchman's idea that the death and suffering of the 14th century reflect that of the 20th century, especially the horrors of World War I. Huh. Okay. It was a history book about the 14th century and comparing it to the horrors of the early 20th century, I think. Was and, it? And a... that, that showing that the 14th century is a distant mirror of ourselves. So Ooh. I think Neil is showing the, doing these stories in the past to mirror ourselves, perhaps. Was that just a specifically bad century? In Europe or across the I, world? I haven't read uh, A Distant Mirror, so I'm not sure what the contents of it are focusing on about the 14th century being bad. I'm, I think it's about basically what we would describe as the Dark Ages, oh. right? The loss of technology and advancement and, and things like that leading to badness. I believe the reviews were that it's a quite a popular book, but some historians don't consider it very scholarly. Oh, it's a little more pop science. Pop history science, I guess? Sure. Yeah. I think history and science are so connected that at times it's hard to piece them apart. Well, it's hard to test a history hypothesis. Yeah. That's the problem. Yeah. They, they don't work the same. Cover date for this issue, which would be the Sandman number 31, was October of 1991. It was in stores October 20th of 1991. And historical fact for this story comes from a few books. These are the ones that Neil used himself. Herbert Asbury's The Barbary Coast, An Informal History of the San Francisco Underworld. Mm -hmm. That's actually the sequel to something people might have heard of a little more, Gangs of New York. So the sequel to Gangs of New York is stories in San Francisco, and it talks about Emperor Norton. Uh, oh. As well as William Drury's Norton One Emperor of the United States, which is now apparently quite hard to find. And uh, it was also inspired by Catherine Caulfield's The Emperor of the United States of America and Other Magnificent British Eccentrics. And I have a few links I'm going to put up in the show notes. Before we get started, we haven't even talked about the cover yet. If you go to thedreaming.motivedesk.com, you'll see all of these. I've got some images of Emperor Norton. There's also a link to the Virtual SF Museum, which has a history of Emperor Norton's actual decrees. Hmm. Apparently, a bunch of them were faked. So they're trying to curate a list of the ones that they're pretty sure were his. And they're quite interesting. Cool. Uh, I'll pick a few out, but I, I don't want to just make this a Norton trivia podcast because you can just go read these articles themselves. The Wikipedia article on Emperor Norton alone is worth taking the time to go through. It's fantastic. So in summary... Uh, for this, for the, my summary for this issue is Joshua Norton falling to despair, instead dreams of being the first emperor of the United States of America. I have a question for you. Yeah. If you were going to cast an actor to play Norton, who would you cast? Dan Harmon. <laughs> really? Dan, Dan Harmon would be Emperor Norton. Okay. Because he kind of looks like him. Dan Harmon, who makes Rick and Morty. Yeah. And I think he would be a fantastic mad emperor who's also kind of kind 
do you think he would also write it whatever he was in like do you think it, do you think like him also like writing or yeah. producing it at the same so time so you asked me this question and i did not have this answer prepped yeah and it just came to my head it's brilliant and now this is the project that i want the world to make is right. dan Harmon as emperor norton yeah please please people listening to this tell dan Harmon that we want him to play Emperor Norton in a biopic. That's great. That's all I know. I don't have any money. He's the one with the money. Tell him he should do it. It'll be fun. Okay, headcanon accepted. Or at least that could be one of his uh, Halloween costumes. Mm. I would like to just at at least see Dan Harmon dressed up as Emperor Norton for Halloween some year. That would be great. Oh, or as a drunk history. He's not mine to control. I'm just, this is me personally. Like an episode of Drunk History. Oh, Dan Harmon doing Drunk History of Emperor Norton? Yeah. Oh my gosh, Drunk History. Get on this, funny or die. Okay, so this is it. This is what has to happen. Yeah. <laughs> Drunk History, Emperor Norton, Dan Harmon. Excellent. Okay. The cover. The cover is ink and acrylic, and uh, the Distant Mirror's cover styles were inspired by Milton Glaser's Shakespeare covers, which also used ink and sparing color like this. Mm-hmm. So a lot of white with ink and then using color in certain locations. Neil had shown Dave McKean those covers saying, let's do something like this. Okay. Dave McKean notes that this issue's cover was created in a style he was working on for his own graphic novel, Cages. And again, if you go to thedreaming.motivedust.com, I've got a few images up there from Cages so that you can look at them and go, yep, mm-hmm. that's the same style. I also have a cover of Milton Glaser's A Midsummer Night's Dream Shakespeare cover up there, so you can take a look at it. It's quite nice. So this appears to be a building in San Francisco, yeah. and then one window is painted in a different style. Yeah, that's the acrylic. So it's ink and acrylic paints. And uh, Norton is in the window looking out. But there's three lines near the top. Are those supposed to be power lines, do you think? So is this a modern day shot of San Francisco, but then Norton is glowing in the window? Yeah, that absolutely could be. This It's probable that this is taken from just some kind of reference shot Yeah, and then drawn. I'm not sure why he'd draw the power lines in. Would, were, I guess there were no... When did power lines go in? Not Certainly not 1880. No. No. So no, it was in the early 1900s. That's right. I like that idea though, right? Like you have the thing about cities like San Francisco is these buildings do still exist. Mm-hmm. Um, and oh, so, yeah. And so you have these buildings with such a rich history in comparison to a lot of the rest of North America. Some of these cities really do have this rich, rich history to them. Yeah. My one time ever visiting San Francisco Mm -hmm. was actually to go down to a Halloween reading for the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund of Neil Gaiman. Okay. And I took the bus down. And a fellow Neil Gaiman fan, Sadie O. McFarlane, who ran Neil Gaiman fanzine called The Magian Line, which I think there I can find. I'll see if I can find some links to that online. There might be some PDFs of it. It's really great stuff. Offered to put me up for the night. Oh. And this might actually just be a shot of the front of her house. <laughs> that's that's how that's how much this looks like San Francisco. Yeah. Yeah. Hi Sadie, if you're out there. It's been a long time. Thank you so much for your couch for the night. <laughs> she was great. Uh I mean I barely caught up with her, so it was we caught up late and she just took me in and let me sleep on the couch and was like, I'll be gone in the morning, so I guess just lock up and leave. And I, you know, I'm a nice guy, I didn't take anything, but <laughs> I actually left some money and uh in thanks uh for the food and stuff. It was great. Uh I had a great time down there. Uh, if yeah. you ever if you ever think, oh man, I should get on a bus for twenty four hours and go see my kind of author hero do a reading uh, i i give a big thumbs up to it because mm-hmm. because why not uh, even if it stinks you had an adventure yeah 
Yeah. Yeah. That was the first time we met. Oh, I'm going to have to post that photo now. <laughs> We're going to see my hair. Oh, boy. I have a, I have a photo from Neil and I meeting that night. Yeah. Uh, and I had a, it, was, it was the 90s. Mm-hmm. And I liked grunge. Just yeah. warning you all. You should post both of your photos. The, the before, the, and, before after. and after. Okay, yeah. sure. Yeah. yeah. All right, we'll put that up. Three Septembers into January reminded me of San Francisco and meeting Neil and then meeting me again later. We'll put those photos on the show notes at thedreaming.motivedust.com. So our story begins mm-hmm. inside of his room, which I imagine he's he, he billets a room or he rents a room in a boarding house, probably. Yeah, so the story of Joshua Norton... Before this, you can read this on Wikipedia in more detail, but basically there is a massive rice shortage in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And he had come here. He was probably born in London. We're not totally sure. But as a young child, uh, emigrated with his parents to Africa uh, to try to make their way there, uh, showed up to San Francisco with about $40,000 when he was a fairly young man Mm -hmm. and tried to make his way as a businessman. That is the equivalent, they say, of about $1.2 million dollars. Uh, today wow maybe a little more because that equivalency was done in the 90s so it's probably so he came basically a fairly wealthy businessman Mm -hmm. and showed up to i'm going to do some investing bought an entire incoming shipment of rice Mm. at uh x cents per pound Mm -hmm. thinking he had cornered the market and then a bunch of other ships that nobody knew were coming showed up and completely undercut him. He spent a bunch of years desperately trying to not have to pay for that rice that he had signed a contract to pay for mm. and eventually was ruled, no, you have to follow through with this and lost all his money and was penniless. And now here we are. Okay. Well, it begins, he's uh, he's looking in the mirror over his wash basin holding mm-hmm. a straight razor. Yeah. And he's being talked to by somebody we've seen a couple times before. This is Despair, one of the endless. We've seen Despair in The Sandman number 10, which is The Doll's House Part 1. And we've also seen her in issue 21, which is the Season of Mist prologue, when the entire family, minus the prodigal, get together. Mm. So Despair has him in her clutches. Mm-hmm. And says he has potential for despair, perhaps for more than that. We've seen the Endless communicate with each other. They tend to do it formally. They stand in their gallery, which is where the other's sigils stand. And then they hold their sigil and do this formal, I stand in my gallery, I hold your sigil, and I'm calling you. That's how they do their endless cell phone calls. Mm -hmm. Despair here points out, I do not stand in my gallery, neither do I hold your sigil in my hand, but I call on you. And cuts herself. Yeah, sigil. we've seen the fish hook ring before mm-hmm. uh, in Desire's pad in her house. In her gallery. In her gallery. In the threshold, but in, in the, the gallery, yeah. that The ring is Despair's sigil. So it's a ring, but it has this wicked fish hook on it. Yeah. Ugh. Yuck. Yeah. So she cuts her chest and calls her uh, her big bro. Yeah. And he shows up. Dream shows up appropriately attired. Mm-hmm. He's one of the endless that seems to do that. Yeah. He's, he, again, and especially this is before his imprisonment, he's like, this is how rules work. Mm. I show up wearing the appropriate clothing. Mm-hmm. Most people are probably aren't going to see this on this page because it's been removed in the collections. Mm-hmm. But this is actually the credits page in the individual comic. And it's a little different from the others. It says, written by Neil Gaiman, comma, PJF. 
drawn by Mr. Sean McManus, colored by Professor Daniel Vazo, lettered by Todd Klein, notary of New Jersey, assisted by Alisa Quitney, Queen of New York, and edited by Karen Berger, Empress of Brooklyn. The PJF means Pre-Joycean Fellowship. And Wikipedia notes the Pre-Joycean Fellowship, abbreviated PJF, was a collective identification that was semi-seriously adopted by several writers known for fantasy and science fiction to indicate that they value 19th century values of storytelling. An example of such values is clarity, which was called by Jane Yolen the lovely limpid quality of writing. They identified James Joyce as the first proponent of the idea that literature must be inaccessible to be meaningful. So they, they're pre-Joycean. They do not believe that. Oh, like uh, someone who's not formally educated, if they read it and they don't get it. You don't have to hide your language behind flowery, mm-hmm. obscure words. Or jargon, yeah. Yeah, or uh, difficult to parse sentence structures. Okay, so that accessibility of literature is what makes it good as opposed to, you know. I don't know exactly if that's it, but they don't. They believe that literature doesn't have to be inaccessible oh, to okay. be meaningful. That you can do simple literature that's meaningful. Sure. Yeah. Well, that's good. It's not entirely a serious group. No. Right? It's it's even the Wikipedia article notes it's kind of a reason to start literary arguments. Yeah. That's all, right? It's And a reason for a bunch of them to get together and talk about things when they meet up at pubs at writing conferences. Well, I think that's a reasonable argument to make. Like, I think that exists in all art forms, right? Oh, yeah. Like, it's a way that some people who are very, very educated at times can decide to argue that, that a piece of art, if a common person can can get the gist of it without an education then it must be bad you know and that the only the only stuff the only good stuff is very very elevated Mm -hmm. and then you'll have people who believe the opposite and then i think the reasonable space is somewhere in between where you're like you know there should be stuff that when you're educated you get and there should be stuff that when you're not you you know that that that's not the only barometer for whether or not something is good art yeah i agree So despair challenges dream. This entire challenge in the response is phrased as though this is something kind of the, quote, younger endless do, and dream and death tend to ignore this kind of thing. Yeah, so she challenges him to keep Norton out of her realm and also out of Desire's realm and Delirium's realm. Mm -hmm. Hey, we got a human that could fall to any of us. Do you want to see which one gets him before he dies? That's basically the challenge. Mm-hmm. And he says no. And Despair says, I see, you think yourself better than your family dream. It's no wonder our brother turned his back on us. You did not care about him. You did not care about us. If you did, he would not have left us. Despair seems to know, perfectly know exactly what to poke, like where the wound is and how to poke you. <laughs> Very fitting, right? Yeah. Like mentioning the brother... And not caring about family is what goads Dream into doing this thing that he normally doesn't do, mm-hmm. apparently. Like, there's no reason for him to do this, you no, know? No, But she just goes, well, what if the reason our brother is gone is your fault and, yeah. and you're too distant and cold and you think you're better than everyone? And he's like, oh, shit, secretly I do think that. Mm-hmm. Uh... And he gets a little and then says, sleep. And we get Norton's dream. Yeah, he asks Norton who he is. Most of this is pretty much true. Entrepreneur and inventor, the ship full of rice was meant to make him truly rich. Instead, it wiped him out, as I described. 
Sometimes when he sleeps, he's a boy in Africa once more, dreaming of the new world where he'll make his fortune. Uh, he comes to America, and it's all confusing and weird, a country without a king. Now, the, the very tall hat, I imagine, is supposed to sort of represent wealth, mm-hmm. because how tall your hat was was a... Well, it's a, he's a young man. He's wearing big man clothes. Well, also, though, the height of, the height of your um, beaver hat was like directly related to your wealth like it was a signifier Uh, of wealth as well yeah so the fact that in his dream world his hat is so 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 high and then we get the shot of him without a hat Mm -hmm. oh good one good catch yeah that's him poor no hat Mm -hmm. and despair doesn't understand dreams what are dreams dreams are nothing my brother dreams are nothing sister Without dreams, there could be no despair. I don't know. Well, this is sort of the same argument he made with with, Lucifer and hell. Yes. I think that's a direct callback to that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And yet this happened before the Lucifer thing. So -hmm. perhaps we're seeing him, like he said this to his sister, and then was trapped in hell and went, oh, well, yeah, I've got this same thing again. This is kind of his thing. He knows, well, he knows what dreams cause. He knows, he knows that dreams affect all sorts of other things. Mm. So Norton and Dream stand in front of a map of the United States. A very poor one, apparently. These, <laughs> the Salmon Annotations notes that even if certain parts of it should be oddly drawn the way that they have here or confusingly drawn, other parts are just flat out wrong. <laughs> But it's a dream map of the United States, so that totally works. This is the kind of map of the U.S. you would see in your dreams. I think it's kind of hilarious. So Norton is talking about how there's nowhere to go anywhere, nothing to dream, I don't have anything. So his American dream failed. Mm -hmm. And he feels like he has nowhere to go. And it's kind of hilarious because they're showing this huge map of the country. He has everywhere to go. (laughs) (laughs) There's nowhere to go anymore. It's the largest unoccupied place. Yeah. You know, with so much possibility, but that doesn't matter. He feels there's no possibility. That's that's despair's hook in his heart. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he, yeah. <laughs> so Morpheus gives him a dream and he wakes up and we meet Mrs. Rutledge. Is she a real person? I'm not sure if Mrs. Rutledge was real. Okay. It's entirely possible that she is a character. I, I, I would say that Neil probably picked a character who was known to be a boarding house uh, manager, whatever her job is there, and just picked her name. And that maybe she wasn't necessarily Emperor Norton's mm. boarding house uh, manager. What do we got, landlady? Landlady. Yeah, I mean, the thing about being the landlady like this is this is a landlady in a, in a boarding house is a pretty good way to end up as a woman. If you got older, if you were unmarried or widowed, mm-hmm. you know, as long as you had a place to own, you already knew you may already know how to take care of people. So Mm -hmm. making the meals, keeping the house clean, doing all that. And you sort of ended up being a stand-in mother slash wife for a bunch of unmarried men. You know, not in a sexual way, but like you did everything else. You just kind of took care of them. Although now I'm looking at this and they never really say who she is. I'm totally just assuming that he's explaining to his landlady why he's making noise. But she could just be a nosy neighbor, a nosy neighbor. Have you got company? I thought I heard folks talking. I guess. I just assumed that she'd be a woman who would run the boarding house. Yeah. yeah, That's kind of how I feel as well. Yeah. It could be. 
So he says he's taking his proclamation to the newspaper offices. The Evening Bulletin would be best, I think. Yes. The San Francisco Daily Evening Bulletin was published between 8th of October of 1855 and 18th of May of 1895 when it became The Bulletin and then continued to publish until September 19th of 1928 where it ceased publication. It was wow. published every day except Sunday. So he writes his big old proclamation and he sends it into the newspaper. Mm-hmm. At the preemptory request of a large number of the citizens of these United States, I, Joshua Norton, formerly of Algoa Bay, Cape of Good Hope, and for the past nine years and ten months of San Francisco, California, declare and proclaim myself Emperor of these United States. And in virtue of the authority in me vested, I do hereby order and direct the representatives of the different states of the Union to assemble in the music hall of this city on the first day of February, next then and there, to make such alterations in the existing laws of the Union as may ameliorate the evils under which the country is laboring, and thereby cause confidence to exist, both at home and abroad, in our stability and integrity. Norton I. Emperor of the United States. <laughs> that is one sentence. Yeah. <laughs> and they're going to print it. This is clickbait. 1859 clickbait. That, yeah, of course we're going to print it. <laughs> we, we need people to come and look at us and read our paper. This is interesting. And they don't know what it's going to be. Like, if you put it in there, someone may just read it and think it's funny. Yeah. Yeah. And then Death shows up to ask Dream what he's doing. Well, we also have this bottom shot. Mm. Is that supposed to be... That's the emperor outside the newspaper office. Yeah, we see it next panel. He's in the same pose on, against the same brick wall. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He's alone in this shot, and now he's got people with him in the next one. Well, people. Yeah. They're not people. Yeah. He's got Endless with them. And he casts a shadow, but the Endless don't. Correct. They're not really there. No. Nobody can see them unless they want to be seen. Death does show up appropriately dressed, I will note. Mm-hmm. She calls him out for not being a grown-up. She talked about our brother. So that's not your fault. It was his decision. He's a grown-up, and I thought you were too. I may have been wrong. He lets himself get pulled into this fight. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He, he knows it too, like the look on his face where she says, I just hope you know what you're doing. I hope that same thing on occasion. What have you done to that poor man anyway? I have given him what many mortals have lived and died for, sister. I have made him king. And there he is smiling. It's the first time, you know, we really get to see him smiling. Yeah, no more despair. Mm-hmm. And now we have our second September, 1864. This is five years later. Mm-hmm. The man we see with what appears to be writer's block <laughs> is Samuel Clemens, who ends up becoming Mark Twain, one of America's foremost writers mm-hmm. of uh, stories. He did, in fact, work in San Francisco at the Morning Call newspaper around this time. But we have no evidence that he knew of Emperor Norton. He certainly didn't write anything about him. We, we don't know that they went out to eat together. Okay. So but, this relationship is, potent- is, is sort of uh, fabricated. Yeah. We see that when they are eating together, both Dream and Delirium are there, which kind of drives home how not real it is. Yeah, and also it's not unreasonable. Like, really, they're showing, through Mark Twain, they're showing how the citizens of this city interact with Norton. Right. And so you pick someone that people are going to recognize and care about, Mm -hmm. even if it's not, you know, technically true. Oh, and it's a great little idea. And this is 
remember in uh, A Midsummer Night's Dream, mm-hmm. the the Sandman issue, A Midsummer Night's Dream, when Puck says, it's true, it never happened, but it's true? Yeah. That's what this is. Like, this is so good, it's so right, and also... Even though there's no evidence that this happened, this all seems completely reasonable. That he, the people who wrote at newspapers knew who Emperor Norton was. I uh, I want to point out that I love their establishing shot here. So he throws the paper out the window. Damn, damn, damn. And then you can see he's walking down the stairs yes. of the building. And that's why there's damn, 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 damn going all the way down. So it's like a time lapse of him walking down the stairs out the front door saying mm-hmm. damn at every floor. Yeah. Oh, I really enjoy that <laughs> a lot. It's That's writer's block. Yeah. He does get corrected. The correct form of address is your majesty. Norton was pretty prickly about address and things like that. Mm-hmm. We'll see later uh, how he feels about words. He does write a receipt for taxes here. I don't have any evidence of the taxes and things like that, but he uh, certainly did have a lot of people buying him food in San Francisco. And apparently uh, by a certain point, he could use his own money to buy whatever he wanted at restaurants nearby. They, they would proudly put plaques outside saying they would take his money. Yeah, what's neat here is that Samuel says to him, or like like meets him and, and obviously wants to blow some steam off. So he says, oh, have you eaten lately? And Norton's response is like, you can't buy me something. But of course, you do owe me 50 cents. So he gives him 50 cents. And then now that we both have money, we'll go out to eat together. So he finds a, a logical way in which to take charity without right. it being charity. Yeah. I don't know if he didn't take charity, actually. Mm-hmm. He may have just taken charity, but he certainly did also, as we'll see uh, another page or two later, that he did sell his own imperial script to people. Mm-hmm. The bridge that he has commanded to have built across the Bay to Oakland, he did make a decree saying that San Francisco should build a bridge across there. It eventually did get built, uh, not because of his decree, uh, many people think it's the the Golden Gate Bridge, but that's the bridge between San Francisco and Sausalito. The bridge we're talking about is the San Francisco-Oakland Bay Bridge, which locally is known as just the Bay Bridge, and it opened in 1936. Took them long enough. Yeah, 56 years later. There are occasionally pushes to have the bridge renamed the Emperor Norton Bridge. Yeah. It, none of them have pushed through yet, sadly. That would be great. San Francisco needs bridges, Sam. People need bridges. Um... Hello, Dream. This is a weird little town, brother. I mean, everywhere's strange, but I feel at home here, kind of. You know where I spent today? Well, all the little Chinese girls who come over here, you know, two bits a trick. So by the time they're 20, they're old women, too diseased to live. Well, they lock them away in these places where they starve to death or maybe kill themselves. I spent today with some of them. They're nice. What was I saying? Do you like September? I like September. You were here to talk about Norton, I take it, under the terms of the challenge. Challenge? Oh, yeah, she said something about that. I don't know. He ought to be mine, but he isn't. Is he? 
So the story that Samuel Clemens, a.k.a. Mark Twain, is talking about, the jumping frog, Mm -hmm. is one of his most famous stories, the celebrated jumping frog of Calaveras County. Okay. He hadn't heard the story by this time. This is far too early. So this is absolutely an, an anachronism. There's no way that Emperor Norton could have helped him with this. But it's great. Also, in the initial printing, one of Delirium's word balloons didn't get the proper coloring in them. People thought that was significant. It was just an error. It's been fixed in recent printings. Okay. It's just a note in the annotations about that, and I note it in case somebody sees it in their original prints. He's so sane, except about being emperor, of course. I'm not even sure about that. <laughs> it's true. He does seem rather sane, except about being Yeah, emperor. that's, at least in this portrayal, he's nicely mad, I guess, because mm-hmm. he seems to care about people and want good things. Mm-hmm. He just happens to have declared himself the emperor. The emperor gives Samuel Clemens the idea of writing it about the frog. People would like to read about the frog. People like things that make them laugh. People laugh at me, you know, Sam. Don't you mind that, your majesty? Why should I mind, Sam? Let them laugh. I am still their emperor. And Delirium points out she doesn't like it when people laugh at me. And that's true. She has expressed... uh, Dislike of that before in Sandman number 21, page 17, panel 5. So I guess what he's getting into here, he's showing another aspect of what makes him different from other kings, right? So yeah. people with power don't like to be laughed at. Yeah. You know, um, they tend to have thin skin. <laughs> and so for him, he goes, well, what does it matter if they laugh at me? I'm still this. Like that doesn't yeah. challenge who I am. Yeah, I know who I am, and and that can't be challenged by people's laughter, mm-hmm. which is, I think, the moment that shows it's not really delirium that's controlling that part of him, right? Because delirium doesn't like to be laughed at, and yeah. so if that was technically madness, it would, she would, yeah, yeah, it, yeah. And delirium creates a flying frog. Mm-hmm. This proclamation also is fictitious. The one that he writes, I, Norton One, hereby proclaim that Samuel Clemens, newspaperman, who also writes under the nom de plume of Mark Twain, is made by royal appointment, official spinner of tales and teller of stories to these United States of America for the duration of his mortal lifetime, Norton the First Emperor. So is it like a thing about proclamations where they can only be one sentence? (laughs) At least in Norton's mind, perhaps, yeah. You're like, if you put a period in the middle of this proclamation... Someone will be able to challenge it. But if you make it just one run-on sentence, it's fine. I guess so. Maybe that's how he thinks proclamations work. Hmm. That you proclaim by saying one thing. And Norton does thank Samuel for the meal. Mm-hmm. Even though they each paid for their own meal. The, technically, he still thanks him for it. Maybe it's just by sharing with him. By sitting with him. Mm-hmm. Also, a lot of that sentence is really just extra specific descriptions right? He's really saying, I proclaim Samuel Clemens, the official storyteller of the United States of America for his whole life. That's all he's saying. Mm. But it's flowery. It's extended. And he's being very specific about who he is. About who he is, about who Samuel Clemens is, Mm -hmm. what he's being appointed to, and for exactly how long. He's using communication. He's communicating properly because that's that's what leaders do. That's what emperors do. He's not mine, is he? His madness, 
His madness keeps him sane. And do you think he is the only one, my sister? Ooh. And our third September on the next page, 1875. Eleven years later. Eleven years later, 16 years after his initial proclamation. His outfit has changed, but not drastically. He's got a big old hat with a big old feather. I have some notes about his outfit, as a matter of fact. (gasps) I'm excited. His initial blue uniform with gold-plated epaulettes were given to him by the officers of the United States Army Post at the Presidio San Francisco. Okay. So even the military liked him, and they Mm -hmm. gave him a military outfit. After many years, that got worn down. Mm Mm-hmm. When his uniform began to look shabby, the San Francisco Board of Supervisors bought him a suitably regal replacement. He sent a gracious thank you note and an issue of patent of nobility in perpetuity for each supervisor. Huh. He's got himself a cane and an umbrella. Mm Mm-hmm. Or a parasol, I guess you'd call that. A tourist family shows up. Yeah, you know, I was reading about you in our local paper. We're on vacation. The Salmon Annotations picks out that word was, W-U-Z. Mm-hmm. And an aside says, oh, there's a word that describes spellings like this. Mm-hmm. But they couldn't remember the word. It's called I-dialect, E-Y-E dialect. Okay. So you can think of it as dialect for your I. Yeah. It's the use of non-standard spelling for speech to draw attention to an ironically standard pronunciation. The term was coined by George P. Crap, which I believe he's uh, basically the late... 1800s is his era, late 1800s, early 1900s. I can't find the exact time uh, when he quoted this. To refer to the literary technique of using non-standard spelling that implies a pronunciation of the given word that is actually standard. So my favorite example of this, aside from this was here, is W-I-M-M-I-N for women. Mm -hmm. Because that's how you pronounce women. Yeah, but by writing it... Even though you still pronounce that word the same, mm-hmm. it kind of tells you how to pronounce the other words in the sentences. Like it kind of, it, it tells you right. that like sort of, yeah, it gives you an idea. Like for this it, one, he's from Kansas. So we're expecting like a really kind of broad Southern accent, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The spelling indicates that the character speech overall is dialectical, foreign, or uneducated. And you'll start to see this all over the place. Terry Pratchett would use it everywhere. As a mm-hmm. matter of fact, he would go so far as to actually give characters different fonts to be to use. Uh, death is uh, in all caps. And I believe the golem actually communicates in, in Hebrew font mm-hmm. in Discworld. So... Yeah, all sorts of cool things of the way that you spell the word, even though it doesn't change the pronunciation, providing you that information. That's called I dialect. That was my today I learned. Ooh, well, today Mm. I learned that too. Yeah. He uh, refers to San Francisco as Frisco. Mm -hmm. Is that common? Oh, yeah. Lots of people. It's kind of the nickname of San Francisco. Frisco. Oh. Especially back then. San Francisco, not Frisco. This is the town of St. Francis. Yeah, there was a Norton proclamation in 1872 that its authorship is questionable. Mm -hmm. So we're not totally sure this is one of his. But it does actually say, Whoever after due and proper warning shall be heard to utter the abominable word Frisco, which has no linguistic or other warrant, shall be deemed guilty of a high misdemeanor and shall pay into the imperial treasury as penalty the sum of $25. (laughs) Wow. And I'm pretty sure the multiplier... There is about 17 and a half or so, so you can, it's a pretty big fine. I mean, pretty hard to enforce. Oh, sure. Yeah. But for him, it was like, don't call it this. I'm writing a decree. Right. 
Mm-hmm. So yeah, he uh, he seems to not like the word Frisco. Most San Francisco natives do not like the term Frisco. Wooey, way to show everybody back home the souvenir. Yeah, the money that you see in the bottom left panel, certainly that will be 50 cents, is actually pretty much a scan of what his money looked like. Yeah. I'll put some images of his actual money up on the show notes again at thedreaming.motivedust.com. And again, I'll link to places that have all sorts of information like this. Emperor Norton's a super interesting guy to read about. Yeah. And he uh, he has a friend. Mm-hmm. This is going to seem a little odd for him to have a Chinese chamberlain mm-hmm. who treats him this way. Neil mentions that while he was prepping this story and knew about Emperor Norton but hadn't done all the full Uh, readings and stuff he was like i'd like him to have a chinese chamberlain and then almost immediately read that he had a chinese chamberlain named ah how this character is real oh cool yeah he speaks to him in fluent english Mm -hmm. but then when he's approached by uh another man a drunken sailor he uh switches it up to something to 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 not have to speak with him fake i don't speak english chinese accent Mm -hmm. yeah Showing that he is obviously a very intelligent person and responds very quickly to things like this in the appropriate manner to get rid of him. It was great, right? He's still submissive to this like angry, drunken guy, but gives him exactly the answer that will get him to just go away. Mm-hmm. Now, the Tong Wars, is that a real thing? So the Tong are Chinese organized crime, Chinese okay. gangs. Uh, I don't have a ton of information on them. They actually did exist. Chinese immigrants into San Francisco, unlike black people in America, came there willingly, Mm -hmm. but were then just treated terribly anyway, right? They'd heard about the gold rush. They'd heard about uh, land of opportunity and come over, and they hadn't heard about all the racism. And building the railroad and whatnot. Yeah. I mean, jobs, right? They wanted people to build the railroad, and those were actual jobs, but then- they treated the Chinese workers terribly. And, and, and they weren't allowed to do some of the jobs they came over to do. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And that's, sure that's part true. of what has like shaped the North American view of Asian Americans ever since that. So mm-hmm. Chinese men who came over to do physical labor jobs and to work the same, those kinds of jobs were forced to work what was deemed sort of feminized work. Right. So they were only allowed to cook food, do laundry, which is also happens to be why like so many um businesses like that are are like owned by Asian families and run because for a long time that was the only thing they were allowed to to open as a business. Yeah. 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 Uh, San Francisco has a bustling uh Chinese population still. It's very famous for its Chinatown. Mhm. There's a couple of stories about Emperor Norton and the Chinese in town. There were a lot of racial tensions in town. Uh, mm-hmm. Riots would happen. And there's one story that there was a riot of armed men heading into Chinatown to go cause trouble. And Emperor Norton stood in the middle of the street facing them as they approached, reciting the Lord's Prayer with his head bowed. And eventually they gave up and went home. Wow. Well, again, perhaps apocryphal. People might have liked to tell stories about him. Uh, There's another story that uh, two opposing Tong gangs were approaching violence, and he walked in between them and told them to go home in peace, and they did. Hmm. Enough of those. There's enough stories like that. Some of them have to be kind of true in some way, right? You know? 
No. No. <laughs> <laughs> Don't. That's not, that's not logic. <laughs> it's they, my logic. <laughs> uh, what I like to think is that if he, if he was at all a problem, like if he was racist or, or ugly or, you know, uh, offensively, quote, crazy to people, those stories would be there. But instead, he was beloved. Yeah. The, he did have a Chinese chamberlain. We know that. Mm-hmm. We do know that the military gave him his outfit. We do know that, that the board of supervisors replaced it when it got too shabby. Mm-hmm. We know that the restaurants all loved him, that they would take, if you bought some of his imperial script and they went to a restaurant, you could use that to pay for your food. Yeah. But really they did that so that he could use it to pay for his food because they liked having him in. Mm-hmm. So uh, he may not have done all the great things, but he seems to have been loved. Yeah. It's not like he was getting rich off of that system. There were rumors abounding about Emperor Norton that he was secretly massively wealthy and was doing this only to find the true good people in town. But uh, mm. after he died, they found he had very, very little. Yeah. Yeah. So Ahau wears the long Q ponytail, spelt Q-U-E-U-E, at least in English. Uh, this custom actually originated from the Manchu people in China. Okay. When the Manchu conquered the rest of China, ending the Han dynasty and beginning the Qing dynasty, the last imperial dynasty, they forced the conquered people to adopt the queue as a sign of submission. Mm. They wanted to wipe out their traditional hairstyles. Okay. And said, this is the new one. Huh. And it eventually, they eventually changed their mind about the hairstyle and loved it. So it's you're shaved up at the front of your head, but you grow it long in the back and braid it into that ponytail. Hmm. Party in the back, business in the front. Yeah, it kind of is the ultimate party in the back, business in the front, mm-hmm. for sure. And Ahau says his presence is requested at the Cobweb Palace. And over the page, we see the Cobweb Palace. This is a real place. Mm-hmm. It was called the Cobweb Palace because the man who created it, Abe Warner, liked the spiders and left them to do their business up in the roof. So it had this huge cobweb up in the roof area. In 1856, a man by the name of Abe Warner opened the Cobweb Palace in San Francisco right by Meg's Wharf. This bar was frequented by sailors that had just come to the area on ships, and with them they brought many knickknacks from around the world. Warner was fascinated by the objects and stories these sailors had, and many of the souvenirs people brought from their travels were left to become a piece of the Cobweb Palace. Pieces of scrimshaw that were created by visiting sailors adorned the back wall of the bar. The Cobweb Palace was also home to many animals. Monkeys and parrots moved freely through the bar and patrons often fed them peanuts. Spiders were also abundant because of the thick cobwebs hanging everywhere. Warner loved spiders and the webs they made, so he left them in the bar, and that's how the Cobweb Palace got its name. So Abe Warner, real guy, Cobweb Palace, animals all over. Well, if you think about it, especially back in the day, he probably had a lot more flies. Good point. Yeah. Because you couldn't seal up food in the same way and even like a lot of liquor and stuff. It just wasn't as sealable. Mm -hmm. And so, and then you've got these animals that are shitting everywhere like, (laughs) and people shitting everywhere. You just, oh, yeah. You had a lot of flies. So spiders are good. Yeah. I, I, spiders are my allies. I hate flies. I hate mosquitoes and spiders that eat them are, they're my buddies. Yeah, we live in our own little version of the uh, cobweb palace. I, if the spiders stay up in the ceiling area, I am absolutely happy for them to be here. The thing is, by the time a spider web becomes a cobweb, 
There's no spiders living in it. Yeah, I think it's moved on. Yeah, it it collects enough dust that it becomes visible, mm-hmm. and it's not a it's not a, nothing's living in it anymore. So you're saying we should get rid of these so that they've got space to make beautiful new spider webs? Uh. Uh, sounds like work. <laughs> He's offered a drink, and Emperor Norton asks for a glass of white wine, a light hawk, if you have such a thing. A hawk is a British term for German white wine. Mm. Uh, sometimes it refers to white wine from the Rhine region and sometimes to all German white wine. It's short for the obsolete word Hockamore, which is an alteration of Hockheimer, derived from the name of the town Hockheim am Main in Germany. Okay. And a little bit of trivia there. Just want some white wine, preferably German white wine. Mm-hmm. The parrot... Seems to have some really cool things memorized, or it's intelligent. I think it's intelligent. (laughs) I think that's what we're supposed to gather from this. Yeah, in this story, the Cobweb Palace is a much more special place Mm -hmm. than anybody would have dreamed. Grandfather, I hear men coming. (laughs) Grandfather, I hear a ghost riding towards us. Calm yourself, Griselle. I know he's coming. He's the last of our guests. He will not harm us. Not us. Not here. Now I want a Tales from the Cobweb Palace story series, right? With with Abe Warner as kind of the Mr. Rourke of his old-timey San Francisco-based fantasy island or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's what I want. I want the the woman in these... I want the curvaceous woman in these paintings Mm -hmm. to be kind of like a painting from Hogwarts where she can talk and moves around and stuff. Like, (laughs) Yeah, probably would. Right? She yeah. would probably be constantly talking to Abe, giving yeah. him advice. Or like she's mostly still, so the customers don't catch on, but she's as, as much alive as the as the animals that live in the place. Mm-hmm. Oh, mm-hmm. she knows. She's like a, one of the, uh, the, the weeping angels. She doesn't move when anybody else is watching, just when Abe sees. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the drunk, the drunks who go in there, um, go. Oh, I swear she was positioned differently last time. I think she smiled at me, but everyone's like, "Oh, you're drunk." You know? Yeah, yeah. Okay, I like this place. <laughs> okay, in marches the King of Pain, Eesh. the Monarch of Monkshood, the Wizard of Wolfsbane, the Earl of Aconite. By the way, all three of those things are the same thing: Monkshood, Wolfsbane, and Aconite. Mm-hmm. The late, the great, the King of Pain. Remember me? Now you'd think this is maybe a. A reference to uh, maybe his version of an old-timey Joker. Yeah. Right? He looks kind of Joker-like and and is a little mad and kind of similar in that he's got this superhero-y choice of clothing. The King of Pain was a real San Francisco personality. Neil actually posted a snip from The Barbary Coast, that book that was one of the references, that talks about the actual King of Pain on his blog a few years back. And here it is. Another habitue of Martin and Horton's and an occasional visitor at the Cobweb Palace was an itinerant healer who called himself the King of Pain. He was probably the most ornate personage in the San Francisco of his time. His customary attire was scarlet underwear, a heavy velour robe, a high hat bedecked with ostrich feathers, and a heavy sword. When he went abroad, he rode in a coal-black coach drawn by six snow-white horses. The King of Pain made a fortune selling aconite liniment from a pitch at 3rd and Mission Streets, but he lost all his money at the gaming tables and finally committed suicide. Mm, so he wanted. He desired, yeah. Mm. Uh, another story I have about him is the, the thing that might be wrong about what he's wearing here is that description of what he wore is all that he wore. 
scarlet underwear, a heavy velour robe, and a high hat high hat bedecked with ostrich feathers. He was otherwise naked. He claimed that you would be impervious to everything if you rubbed his aconite liniment on yourself. You didn't need to wear clothes. Now, back in the day, though, underwear probably was long underwear. Oh, it, oh, it could be long underwear. Yeah, yeah. I don't... They didn't, you didn't yeah. just have small pieces of underwear. Underwear was a full deal. Sure. But here he's got a waistcoat and a button-up shirt, and he's got a tie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was, uh, he was a character. Yeah, it sounds like a snake oil salesman. <laughs> he was, yeah. Snake oil uh, salesman with a real gambling problem. So he kind of, desire drove him to despair. Here he is, as we find out later, the spokesperson for desire. Mm-hmm. So when Emperor Norton says, I'd heard you'd killed yourself over gambling debts, it's true, he had. And that's why he's white as a ghost. Well, you remember that when some mortals die, Dream says you could stay in the dreaming if you'd like. Mm -hmm. It's entirely possible this is what Desire can also do. Mm. You can come work for me because you were so good at this kooky Desire thing. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Well, not only did he Desire and gamble until he lost everything, Mm -hmm. but he made others desire like he made others desire because he's a snake oil salesman so like right he works in this this feeling of this desperation to live forever this wanting yeah. you know so he also uses yeah like he was already in her domain before mm-hmm. he w- gambled himself to death he was yeah. fully in her domain yeah. as well or in their domain and aconite i mean it does have some medicinal qualities it certainly is a useful herb mm-hmm. but in even moderate quantities, it's very dangerous. Yeah. So he's he's selling dangerous dangerous stuff and overselling how good it is for you. Oh, yeah. I don't I don't know anything about wolfsbane. The scientific name is of the plant is aconitum. Mm-hmm. It's also known as aconite, monkshood, wolfsbane, leopardsbane, mousebane, womansbane, devil's helmet, queen of all poisons, or blue rocket. Most species are extremely poisonous. Oh, yeah, it's poison. But you dilute it and then it can do stuff. I'm not finding any legitimate medicinal use now. That no, I'm it's poison. It. <laughs> so it's basically a poison that you would t- that they, people would sell you as as medicine, mm-hmm. and because it was very mildly poisonous, you'd be like, something's working. Ooh, poison. Okay, <laughs> don't take it. Real snake oil. Right. So a perfect representative of desire. Mm-hmm. Sold poison and became wealthy at it and then lost it all because he couldn't stop gambling. Now he's come to make a deal with the emperor. Mm-hmm. An offer. Joshua, buddy, buddy, you don't have an empress. You may be Norton the first, but where are Norton's the second to 16th going to come from? The stork isn't going to bring them. I must admit that the subject has not escaped my notice. I have proposed matrimony to a number of eligible ladies, but alas, I fear they are all intimidated by my rank. And to date, they have all refused me. Yeah, well, no surprises there. (laughs) Okay, Josh, this is the score. I can offer you a few potential empresses. Take your pick. You want to see them with their clothes on or off? Sir. Okay, okay, don't get yourself all riled up. Here's the choice. Five potential queens, all top drawer, genuine, sweet as pie aristocrats. You choose, but that's not all I'm offering. You can't take your new empress back to your little commercial street walk-up, can you? You give the word, Joshua. Building starts tomorrow. Nice house, huh? 
I don't understand, sir. Are you expecting me to make some kind of deal with you? Oh, no. No, 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 no. Well, only a little one. Look at her. Isn't she beautiful? She could be yours, Joshua. All yours. All you have to do is want her. All you have to do is want. Ooh. Emperor Norton doesn't just say no. No. He doesn't say, oh my goodness, I'm so tempted, but I must thank you, and I must thank you for this. He is offended. Yeah. He's a rational man, and he mm -hmm. does not believe in ghosts. But because he is the emperor, he can't give in to desires. He mm -hmm. has to live with what he has, which is that the people take care of him. Yeah. This is my city in my country. They treat me well here. I want nothing. Yeah. But you could be a real emperor, goddammit. You can have anything you want. You were with me when they arrested me for lunacy, Ahau, and when they released me. Do you remember what the judge told the young patrolman? I am your chamberlain, highness. I forget nothing. He said, and this is true, Mr. Norton has shed no blood, robbed no one, and despoiled no country which is more than can be said for most fellows in the king line. I am the emperor of the United States, Payne. I am content to be what I am. What more than that could any man desire? So it was a young patrolman that did actually arrest him for lunacy. Mm -hmm. The judge did say that, and he was instantly released. The police force apologized, and Emperor Norton forgave the young policeman incredibly magnanimously. Hmm. And the King of Pain pushes, actually starts just offering warm flesh writhing beneath your own, young, scented, moist female flesh, power, money, don't you want anything? And Emperor Norton's like, oh, unfitting. We're yeah, done talking. it's not... And so he leaves. The Emperor was offered a choice. The Emperor said no. That is the Emperor's prerogative. And outside, we get to see that carriage you talked about with <laughs> yeah. the, the, the King of Pain, a black carriage. With white horses. Yeah, white stallions. Mm. So you failed. I, well, yeah, sorry, Desire. How? How did you do that, Dream? Norton lusts after women. I can feel it. He wants it so badly. There was no way he could say no. He had no protection. He should have been mine. He has his dignity, sister, brother. He is, after all, an emperor. Don't give me that shit, Dream. He's no king. He's a crazy man with a cockeyed fantasy. Payne, get your dead ass in here. We're going. Desire, you disappoint me. This evening's display, bringing back a dead man to offer Norton the pleasures of the world, it was not very subtle. Go screw yourself, big brother. And her and Payne take off in the <laughs> carriage. And she says, Get down and lick Payne. He wants <laughs> subtle. He'll get subtle. Just watch me. Not here, not with Norton. But I'll make him spill family blood. I'll bring the kindly ones down on his blasted head. One day. And remember that this is before he was trapped in a basement. Uh-huh. And also, this is before Rose Walker's creation. And before she goaded him to go back to hell. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, Desire's been poking at and wanting to really hurt dream for a long time and we very specifically get the plan i'll make him spill family blood 
I'll bring the kindly ones down on his blasted head. It's very likely that Despair started this whole contest because Desire asked her to. Remember that when Despair challenged Dream, she knew already that Desire stood with her and Delirium. Mm -hmm. So probably there's untold story going on where Mm -hmm. Desire had this plan, pulled Despair into it, and then the two of them convinced Delirium to join in Mm -hmm. and the trap was sprung. Mm-hmm. But Desire is upset that they failed. And over the page, we get our January, now that we've had three Septembers. January 8th, 1880, 8 o'clock p.m., 21 years after he declared himself the emperor. He's walking up one of San Francisco's very steep hills yeah. in the in the rain. Can confirm those exist. And he clutches his left arm, which is a sign of a heart attack. Oh, is it? He's, well, he's, not, he's clutching his right arm. Oh, I, I you're think right. What, I think what happened is that the wind blew his umbrella. Like, he probably lost some of his strength. The wind blew his umbrella the other way, and he's trying to, oh, no, there goes the umbrella. Mm-hmm. But the reason the wind got, the, that he lost the umbrella is because heart attack, and so he doesn't have the strength to hold it. Yeah, I guess that makes sense, yeah. And he drops to the ground and passes. Mm-hmm. I hoped that you would come back to me, Joshua, but no. I would seem to have failed. You're a pitiful madman, a Tom O'Bedlam dying in the gutter in the rain, but you never despaired. You won. The term Tom O'Bedlam was used in early modern Britain and later to describe beggars and vagrants who had or feigned mental illness. They were claimed or were assumed to have been former inmates at the Bethlehem Royal Hospital. Bethlehem. Bedlam, mm. Tom O'Bedlam. So she's calling him a, a homeless guy who's claims to be mentally ill but isn't. Or I think it's just, uh, well, Pitiful Madman and Tom O'Bedlam are kind of the same. It doesn't matter if they were faking or not, that some were truly mad and some they claimed were faking. Mm-hmm. But they were both covered under it. I think Despair knows he was kind of mad. Yeah. And Dream gives Despair a little gift. An Emperor Norton statuette. Should I thank you? For the lesson, perhaps, if for nothing else. What lesson? How despair. Hmm. And then death shows up. Time's up, your majesty. Hmm. How are you feeling? I don't know. I was to attend a meeting at the Hastings Society this evening. Then it felt like something struck me in the chest. I feel very strange. You were Jewish once, weren't you, Joshua? Did you ever hear the story of the 36th Zadikum? I do not believe so. They say the world rests on the backs of 36 living saints. 36 unselfish men and women. Because of them, the world continues to exist. Yeah, this is the story of the Zadikum Nistarim, Mm -hmm. the hidden righteous ones, uh, also known as the Lamed Vav Zadikim, the 36 righteous ones, which refers to 36 righteous people. In Jewish folklore, they emerge from their self-imposed concealment, and by the mystic powers which they possess, they succeed in averting the threatened disasters of a people persecuted by the enemies that surround them. Mm. When I started reading this, it seems to me like they're just super good people who then get superpowers. Cool. And come out and do good things, and then they go back. They return to their anonymity as soon as their task is accomplished concealing themselves once again in a Jewish community wherein they are relatively unknown. I I read this and went, weren't the guys who made Superman Jewish? Because now it sounds like Clark Kent is that. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. They they were. They're, it was two Jewish guys. Yes. Yeah. So I, I think that the that was probably a big explanation for superheroes in general mm-hmm. was coming out of Jewish tradition like that. Cool. Yeah, neat. They are the secret kings and queens of this world. So there's death saying, no, the secret kings and queens are the good people. I've met a lot of kings and emperors and heads of state in my time, Joshua. I've met them all. And you know something? I think I liked you best. Well, thank you, young lady. That's a great hat. Can I try it on? I do not see why not. I must confess, I have always wondered what lay beyond life, my dear. Yeah, everybody wonders. And sooner or later, everybody gets to find out. Joshua Norton was buried on Sunday the 10th of January, 1880. 10,000 people filed past the body as it lay in state, and his funeral cortege was over two miles long. His burial was marked by a total eclipse of the sun. He was the first and last emperor of the United States. That's also true. Yeah. He was originally going to be given uh, a pauper's burial, but uh, basically a fund was set up almost instantly, and he was given a very good uh, resting place, which has now been moved uh, because that actual graveyard in itself was all moved, but there's now a place you can go and visit the grave of Emperor Norton. Mm-hmm. I have some obituaries for Emperor Norton. They're kind of long. I'm not just going to read them out to you. What I'll do is I'll post the text for them up in the show notes for this episode at thedreaming.motivedust.com. Mm-hmm. So this, I think this episode's show notes is going to become a really good little resource for here's a bunch of cool Emperor Norton stuff. And I'll link to the places where people have them uh, easier to read. It's really cool. He's a really interesting person to read about. And uh, it's just brilliant the way Neil has taken this real character and used him to tell all sorts of not just stories, but morals and lessons. Mm-hmm. I like. I can feel like a, a song that applies to him maybe is um, You Can't Always Get What You Want by <laughs> the Rolling Stones. But if you try, you get what you need. But if you try sometimes, you just might find you get what you need. As in like his city took care of him. Yeah. He never expected too much from them, you know? Well, if you read some of his proclamations, he actually kind of did. Oh, Uh, okay. (laughs) So while he was a good person, right, and generally loved, he made proclamations that, uh, like, basically abolished the U.S. Congress. (laughs) Okay. And he demanded that the U.S. military go in and do that by force. Oh. Now, the military just ignored him. Yeah. (laughs) Because he was just this guy writing proclamations. But- some people who were unhappy with how Congress was doing things kind of liked him for that. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. He eventually, because nobody was paying attention to those proclamations, he kind of begrudgingly allowed them to exist without his permission later in life. <laughs> like, he just kind of, he would make these proclamations, this will do it better, and then everybody would ignore him, and he would just roll with it and try something else. Interesting. Yeah, it's great. Uh, I really read through the Wikipedia entry on Emperor Norton, because there's so much good stuff in there. It would really, this episode would just be me reading it off to you, mm-hmm. and all the stuff there. And Neil has picked out so much great stuff and presented him so so well it's a great starting point then go out and learn more about him yeah yeah which is i love that about stories like this when you get the fictional version that deals with the reality quite respectfully and then you can go find the reality of it yeah and then you can use that yourself maybe feel a little better about the people on the street well i think this story also kind of says something about subverting our thoughts about poverty and and like 
the welfare system. So there's this kind of capitalist thought when it comes to poverty and welfare and whatnot, Mm -hmm. that if you give poor people things, they'll misuse them. They'll always want more than than they deserve and they'll misuse it and, and that there's no point and that that makes them lazy. Right. Right. And in this story, we see instead that like just by providing for him, he had a positive impact overall as a person. Like if he did what they say he did with the with the Chinese gangs and, you know, with helping people, the the scene with Mark Twain Mm -hmm. and all of that, just by providing him the basic needs in life. He still lived a productive life, even if it wasn't the productive life that capitalism decided he should live. Yeah, exactly. He was a benefit to society. Yeah. San Francisco absolutely valued him. And so to me, like that really speaks to my kind of real socialist feelings about how we should take Mm. care of everybody. Um, (laughs) Even our emperors. Yeah. And that if you take care of everybody, more of them will be good than will be bad Mm. i just believe that i just believe i personally just believe that there are more people out there that if they're not struggling will be good instead of bad oh i mean most people do bad because they're desperate yeah i think and it seems weird to me that that kind of maybe libertarian or more like that that very like that idea that if you provide for people that they Mm. will become bad in some way that that will you know that either they're they're in need because they are bad Mm -hmm. and that if you help them they'll just be worse just it just boggles my mind well the evidence shows otherwise yeah caring for people makes your society better too not just morally better but i mean you'll have less people on the streets begging Mm -hmm. because they don't need to and maybe while they're not begging they'll do something else that's good Mm mm-hmm Next issue we'll be covering is Thermidor. That is The Sandman number 29. Okay. It's another Distant Mirrors. Mm. Starts on June 28th, 1794. Okay. I'll give you a clue. Okay. A, a nice big one because, again, this is kind of a standalone story. It does feature a character we have seen before, mm-hmm. Joanna Constantine. Oh. Can you define the word Thermidor for me? Oh, okay. Would you like to know what Thermidor is? Yes. All right. Well, this is going to be a big hint. Oh, you don't have to define it for me. So during the French Revolution, Mm -hmm. they created their own calendar because they wanted to get rid of the old month names to signify the new era. Okay. Thermidor was the second month of the summer quarter. It started July 19th or 20th, and it ended August 17th or 18th. Okay. So it's another month name. Mm Mm-hmm. One that was used briefly during the French Revolution. So, so we've had three Septembers and a January. Yeah. Okay. So also Dark Reflections. I think there's a double meaning. Dark, distant it, mirrors. Distant mirrors. Because not only is it mirrors as in we're seeing the past and we're drawing conclusions about now through that. Mm-hmm. Also, though, despair is the one who lives in the mirror. Right? Like that's oh, how yeah? she's been described as You're the one. Right. So I think despair will also be in this story. Um Okay. Yeah, I think despair will be an element of this story uh, as well as as the story of someone during the French Revolution. Wait, you said you told me what year it took place in, didn't you? 
1794. Is that during the French Revolution? Yes. Aha! <laughs> okay, someone, yeah, it's a French revolutionary. And for some reason... What's Joanna Constantine doing? Oh, this French revolutionary is also uh, doing some occult stuff. Okay. Yeah. And she's got to go stop it or help it. Oh. <laughs> okay. Well, I guess we're going to find out <laughs> next episode. You've been dreaming of The Sandman, issue 31, three Septembers and a January. For show notes, visit thedreaming.motivedust.com. Support future episodes at patreon.com slash thedreaming, and we'd sure appreciate it if you tell your friends about us. Our theme music is Oneri by Kai Engel. Hear more at kaiengel.bandcamp.com. The Dreaming was recorded in Burnaby, British Columbia, Canada, on the unceded territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, Kikate, and Tsleil-Waututh Nations. I'm Joe Fulgen. Thanks for listening. Time to wake up. I like how you ask me, like, is it this or that? I'm like, oh, <laughs> that's my responses. <laughs> <laughs>